we're here and God just showed up, amen? Can we give our team a hand? Um, <clears throat> today was one of those days, you know, I'm like you some days, you walk in and you're like, man, I needed that. And I needed that worship today, amen? So good. Whether you're online or in person, we are so glad that you've shown up today. And it's interesting that, you know, we're coming off of Easter weekend, you know, the Good Friday, the resurrection, the cross, so much to celebrate. And yet it begs the question, how do, how do we show up in our world in light of what Jesus has done and who he is, right? And so with that said, if you're one of those that came last week for the first time to the egg drop event or to Easter and you're back today, whether it's online or in person, we just want to welcome you. We want to thank you for being here. Uh, we're starting a new series today. And this series is looking at what does it mean to really show up as a Christian? Today, we're looking at lifestyle Christianity. What does that actually mean and look like? And it's interesting because Maybe you saw uh, back in the fall, there was a, a video that went viral on social media. And, and it had people that had this hypothesis, what would happen if we took a ladder and started walking in to places? Two people with a ladder, a third with a video camera. And their theory was, if you walk in with a ladder, you'll get in anywhere because you look important and people won't question you. Seriously, 100% of the time, they got into movie theaters, they got into office spaces, they got into places they should not have got by just simply carrying a ladder. Some of you just came up with your afternoon plan. <laughs> You're like, I wonder if it'll work at AMC in Vero Beach, right? Uh, the truth was it worked and it was interesting because they were showing up as if they were something that they actually were not. And, and when I think about this idea of showing up, there was another picture that went viral recently on social media. Uh, this is actually a picture that you may have saw. This is of three crosses in lower Manhattan. This is from 1956. I actually had to fact check this because I did not believe that it might be true. That actually, I wondered, could that be photoshopped? Is that accurate? And I, had to, I found the publication that first published it. It was legitimate. That in Lower Manhattan in 1956, on Good Friday, they put up three crosses to celebrate in American culture something that today we know cancel culture would not allow. Now, here's what's most disturbing about this, is actually when you look at what's going on with Christianity and you look at what's going on in our country, crosses showing up on a building aren't the biggest issue. Let me show you. This is actually from George Barna, who does re his firm does research, and this is from 2000 to 2020, basically the last 20 years. There's three lines there. One is a non-practicing Christian, that's blue, non-Christian is yellow, and red is practicing Christian. This means these are people that have said, not only am I showing up with a ladder, but I'm showing up in life as a practicing Christian. I don't just believe it. I'm living it. It's a lifestyle. Are you tracking with me? The biggest statistical change in the last 20 years is actually not in church attendance. It's not in these other things. It's in the fact that 20 years ago, 50% almost of people said they were practicing Christian. In 2020, that number had dropped to 25%. We have a lifestyle issue in Christianity right now. We're not surprised, are we? I mean, we see it all around us. We see it in our own life. We might even see it in the life of the church. 
And the beauty of what we're looking at in this series is God is going to remind us that, hey, I did it then and I can do it again now. I did it in that generation and I want to do it today. I want to show you how to take what you maybe have been carrying around and believing in and acting as if it was real and lay it down at the foot of the cross and actually pick up your cross and follow Jesus. As we look at the book of James, James was Jesus' brother. He was actually among the brothers that Jesus had that were skeptics, that were cynics, that didn't initially necessarily believe that their brother was who he said he was. Let me show you in John chapter 7 a moment where we see this. This picks up in verse 2 through 5. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers, these are Jesus' actual earthly brothers, said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So James is among those brothers. And yet something radically changes in James's life. James actually goes through a significant enough change that as we open the book of James that he wrote, you need to understand a few things about this man. Not only was he Jesus' brother, but he actually wrote the first and earliest New Testament account, the earliest letter. This is written within about 10 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, somewhere in AD 40 to 45. James was known as James the Just, Another nickname for him was James, uh, was uh, old, old Camel Knees, because he spent so much time in prayer and was known for it. As he writes this letter, notice how he begins in James 1 verse 1, as somebody who doesn't identify or show up as Jesus was my brother, he shows up in a way that is significant and telling for you and I. Verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. He doesn't say, hey, you need to listen to me because my earthly brother was Jesus. He he doesn't, I mean, how many of you actually, if you think about your own family of origin, your own siblings, would be willing to say, I'm a servant of of my brother or sister? (laughs) Right? I mean, if we're honest, we're like, no way. Something shifted dramatically in James's life. You see, he saw Jesus for who he was. He saw that Jesus did die, did rise again, that he was worthy of his worship and worthy of his life in following him. And so he says that I'm a servant of the God, Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing to the 12 tribes and he's giving them greetings because he now has new brothers and new sisters as a result. Let me just remind you that when we come into contact with Jesus, he changes our lives. He does something that invites us to a new life. And that's what baptism symbolizes. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 13, it says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, say one, One spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
James now had a new family, and as we celebrate baptism next weekend, I just want to remind you that Jesus identified with us and set an example in baptism. He was baptized and said we too should be baptized. It's a symbol as we go under the water of our old life being buried as Jesus was raised on the cross and buried in death. And as we come up out of the water, we celebrate his resurrection and our new life that we're made new, that we now have not just identified with Jesus in name, but we now say this is the life and the lifestyle I want to live. Amen? So if you've not been baptized as a believer, I want to encourage you to sign up. We'll get with you this week. We have a class on Wednesday. If that doesn't work for you, we'll connect with you. We would love to have you a part of that as a professing believer. James had done that. James, in fact, then writes from this place of what it means for Christianity to be a lifestyle. As we go through James chapter 1 today, we're going to do it kind of survey style. I'm going to cover a number of verses. And as I do that, it was interesting because I'm looking at it and going, God, how do you sum this up? Because in some ways, as you listen, read and, and look at commentators and scholarship on this particular chapter, uh, all of them are, say it, it's kind of hard to find an exact theme outside of this idea of Christian living and lifestyle. It's almost like James is a little ADD. So if, if you're kind of, I'm undiagnosed, but some of you know, like, mm, I think he might be, right? Um, you're in good company because we're going to bounce around a little today. But as we bounce through this chapter, the arching theme is what does it mean for Christianity to be a lifestyle? And it's really in kind of two subheadings, that faith in Jesus changes us personally and also changes us interpersonally. And as we look at the first section with personal, it's this reality that God works from the inside out that he begins a great work in us, that there's this relationship with him, and then he begins to work through us to affect the world around us, how we show up, amen? So let's take a look and let's start moving through this because Jesus changes everything and he changes our lives and our personal lives. Uh, verse two through four, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you're taking notes, Jesus changes our attitude and our altitude. And this is really important to understand because life is full of trouble. Anybody else had a tough week? Tough month, tough year? Maybe you're just like, man, my life has been tough. What Jesus is getting at here, what James is articulating is that Jesus is there through all of it, that he's available to us, that you and I are to be a people that count it joy when we face trouble. Trouble's going to come. I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time that I, you know, without consciously thinking of it, it was like, woo, I bounced a check, right? Count it all joy. I didn't get the parking space I wanted. Somebody just cut me off on Route 60 and gave me the number one salute, <laughs> right? I mean, these are just little things, but they get under our skin. They're the trouble of life. And in that trouble, James is saying, count it all joy. God's using it to grow you. 
God's using the trials and the tribulations and and the things that you're facing that you can count it joy that he counts you worthy enough to grow you and perfect you through it. It's a different perspective. It requires a different altitude. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 31 gives us a great picture of this. It says this in that passage. It says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is a promise to hold on to that God, as we look to him and adjust our attitude, can also help us soar above the problems and troubles we're facing. I met with a uh, kind of a mentor, uh, pastoral mentor a couple weeks ago. And he's listening to me and he's like, Man, you, you, you sound kind of miserable. It's like, I, ooh, yeah, I guess so. I'm trying to find my joy again, right? And he said, you keep talking about all of the things in your way, and I want to give you a different perspective that maybe actually you need to realize that the things you think in your, are in your way and need to be moved are the very things God has put there, and they're the way. And he's going to use them to grow you and develop you And I realized that God was speaking through my friend. It's a hard deal, but it's a perspective we need if we're going to live in this world as Christians. Verses five through eight, he goes on. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he is, will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When we look at this, Jesus changes us personally and changes who we turn to for wisdom. That we actually begin to realize that, that many of us are turning to the wrong things for wisdom. We're turning to self-help books, self-help shows, podcasts. We're turning to social media and to friends. We're turning to everything but God and his wisdom. That actually we need to turn first and foremost to God. And as we do that, he has a wisdom that is different than the world. It's a wisdom that changes us, transforms us, gives us insights that we wouldn't otherwise have. And when we walk in that rather than doubting and being unstable and double-minded, we begin to see God give us direction that prevails, a direction that navigates the tough stuff of life, stuff that even begins to inform and show us the plans that he has for our life. So who are you turning to for wisdom these days? When I was uh, 16, 17 years old, there was actually a, a teacher and a coach I had that I uh, respected uh, to a degree. Uh, we had had a tough relationship, but uh, I still respected. I wanted his respect. I'll never forget, he pulled me aside. And, and at that stage in life, I wasn't following Jesus. I was a mess. I, w- I was on a trajectory at that young age, believe it or not, for, uh, to be dead young or in jail young. And, and he pulled me aside and, and he said, hey, uh, you're hopeless, He said, people don't change, and I don't believe you will ever change. Thankfully, by God's grace, 
I heard it as a challenge versus a moment of defeat. For the next couple of years, I did everything, though, in my own strength to prove him right. And then it was about 18, 19 years old that I fully surrendered to Jesus. And when I surrendered, I made a decision that 25 years later, I can tell you, has absolutely led to who I am today and changed me. And that, praise God, that decision was, I'm going to be in God's word every day. And his word had wis- has wisdom. This is not like any other book. This is alive and active. It's the authoritative word of God. And when we turn to it for wisdom, he begins to change us and transform us. And I stand before you, not as a pastor, first and foremost, but a Christ follower that has been changed because I've turned to God for wisdom every step of the way. And it's made a difference. So what does that look like for you to commit to turning to him for wisdom and believing that he can change you and the things around you? Verse 9 through 11. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. If you're taking notes here, Jesus changes our identity. He becomes our first and foremost. He becomes our pursuit. He looks at us in a world, James's world, that was divided by the have and have nots 2,000 years ago. He looks at us in our world that is often divided by the haves and haves nots. And he says, listen, it isn't about how much you have or don't have. It's about what has you. Is Jesus your identity? Or is your identity caught up in what you don't have or the wealth that you do have? See, the issue isn't the possessions or the lack of them. It's what possesses us. What has a grip on us. And what he's getting at here is, listen, don't be defined by what the world defines you with. Don't allow people to put the labels on your clothing as if that makes you who you are. How much is in your bank account or how much isn't? Jesus, for them then and us today, levels it all and says, I'm your identity, now pursue me. And when we start pursuing him, we realize he's been coming after us. And it is incredible what happens when he becomes our identity and not the things of this world. So he exalts those that have nothing and he humbles those that have everything and the end goal is the same. You're brothers and sisters in Christ. And you better believe on the Treasure Coast, we need to hear this. We need to hear this. To be reminded when we leave this room that we have brothers and sisters that don't look like us, maybe don't have homes like ours, clothes like ours, but he's our identity. And he reminds us we all need him, amen? So it's what we do with what we have that matters. The next few verses, 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits 
of his creatures. If you're taking notes here, Jesus changes who we blame. Actually, I apologize. I jumped ahead, team. Go to the next slide, and I'll back up in a minute. I jumped to verse 16. I should have been on 12. Verse 16, if you can jump there. I'm human, guys. Isn't that awesome? Just own it in the moment. It happens. So as I just read through these verses, Jesus changes our expectations. And this is really important because what he's getting at here is, listen, you live in a world that's full of trouble, full of trials, and the world is going to beat you up, and you're going to begin to believe that I'm not good. And you see, God is good no matter what's going on in the world. And when we begin to shift our expectations and believe that when we come into a relationship with Jesus and his Holy Spirit fills us, we are the first fruits of his creatures. We are different than the rest of creation. He looks at you and I and he says, you're my firstborn, sons and daughters. I favor you. I bless you. I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. I want to help you through every aspect of life. It changes our expectations. Now, some of you, that means like you got to adjust. Because for you, you're like me. You're human. You're like, well, okay, I want that to show up in my driveway with a new ride. Right? Or I want, to show, I want that to show up with a new relationship. And what God is saying is, listen, you don't, you don't see what I see. You see this. Bound by time. God's above time. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. He's not bound by time. He's sovereign. And so he looks at our lives and sees more. And we just have to expect and believe that he's good no matter what we're facing here on earth. We may get the things we want. We may not. But hopefully our desire is to have him with us and to believe that he favors us and blesses us through all of it. Amen? All right, let me back up to verse 12 through 15 now, if you can go back to those slides, because this is really important. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured, say lured, and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So Jesus changes, we learn here, who we blame. This is really important because some of us have assigned our struggles and trials and problems and, and said they're all his fault. And, and that may leave us in a place where we don't believe anymore that he's a good heavenly father, where we've actually assigned the blame due to the enemy to God. You see, troubles and trials grow us. Temptation is a whole different story. The, the word that is used there for enticed in the Greek, deliezo, is a word that means, it, it's similar to like if you are fishing and you cast out a lure, and that lure shines and attracts and and, and, it, and, and the fish has a choice whether or not it bites, right? But, but it's luring it in and enticing it. That's what the enemy does to you and I. He throws out bait and he tries to entice and lure us 
away from God and away from the plans that he has. It's actually when we make the choice to succumb to the temptation that it says we give birth to sin and that sin leads to death. See, John 10.10 is really clear about the enemy. He has one job description, right? To steal, kill, and destroy. He's out to take you and I out, and that's what sin does. Same verse, Jesus says, I've come to give life and life abundantly. And so the beauty of this is, is we need to first understand who we're blaming for the sin in our world. God is holy. He doesn't cause us to sin. And we also can't blame everything on the enemy because he's tempting and luring us, but it's us at time that takes the bait. And understanding who to blame allows us to begin to properly confess and to ask for forgiveness. You see, if you're blaming everybody and not taking any ownership, it's really hard for you to get right with the Lord and with others. Can I get an amen on that? I know this is hard to hear, but we need to hear it. So I begin to own my part, and then I also can probably understand other people's part, because other people sin, and their sin affects me, and it affects you. And so if we use that to blame God, we may find ourselves very far from God and missing that he's actually really good and he's available. So we have to look at who are we blaming and how do we make sure that we're staying on God's path and believing in his goodness. So that's how he works personally in us. He also works interpersonally through us. And that's the next few verses that we're gonna look at to close here today. Picking up in verse 19, it says, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be qu quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Whoo, that's a good word for a modern America, right? And for me too, right? If I own my stuff, I need it too. Verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The beauty of what James is saying here is, listen, there's God's word, his spirit, the gospel is implanted in our hearts and lives and it's meant to actually save us and work through us. Verse 19, he's saying, very simply, which is a great verse for some of us to memorize and to lean into, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Maybe today you needed to hear that on your way to church. We're challenged every day to speak quickly, to react in anger, and it doesn't do any good. It's not actually how God wants us to show up as believers in our world. Back in 2009 or so, it's been about 14, 15 years, Cindy and I are meeting with, uh, Cindy's my wife, uh, coming up on 22 years now, woohoo, and uh, we uh, were meeting with a marriage counselor, and, and this verse came out, and all I will tell you is I was a pastor then, but I was a very quick to speak, defensive, and hot-headed pastor. Aren't you glad God did something? <laughs> And he's still doing something, to be clear. 
There was about a five to eight year period where James 1.19 was a daily word implanted that I needed it to get through the day without saying or doing something stupid. It's just the truth. It worked on me, it changed me, it transformed me. I'd say now there's probably not a given week that I still don't need James 119. All right, some of you are sitting there going, I wonder if it was when I met with him. <laughs> a lot of it's in the home, right? A lot of it's in the places that we let down our guard and that's where we're really tested on our lifestyle. So why do I say this? Because you and I have to think about how are we living our faith? How is it being placed out there? Jesus changes, if you're taking notes, our response to others. And that's really important in this day and age. Whether it's a marriage or your kids, your grandkids, whether it's in the church, whether it's your response to politics or news that you don't believe with, believe in or want to deal with. Woo, right? He changes our response. And you may say, well, I, I'm slow to speak and slow to get angry. Great. There are 66 books in the Bible. My guess is there's a verse that you might need to implant right now that helps you respond to the people around you differently. Yours might look different than mine. Let God show you. And that's what the next set of verses are going to show us. Let's take a look at the next few verses where, again, it talks about this lifestyle Christianity and how are we living it with others. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, verse 22, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, be no hearer who forgets, but a doer, can you say doer? Doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If you're taking notes, Jesus changes us to hear, obey, and be blessed. There's a mirror up here for a reason, and you just heard what it was. When we begin to get God's word in us, and we begin to allow it, I know, the, the 13-year-old in me was like, I want to shine them all in their eyes, and you know, that's not the point, and that's my ADD kicking in. Um, he's saying, listen, the word is not just something you read, right? The word is actually something that when we look into it, it looks into us. That actually, scripture teaches us it's alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, that it divides to bone and marrow. So when we read, the Spirit begins to show us things in us or through us that need to begin to change. And when that begins to happen, the question is, do we hear it on a Sunday or do we hear it in a devotional, walk away and forget what we just heard and what we look like? You ever had a day where like in the morning you fixed your hair and then you went through the day and forgot by three o'clock what you looked like because you were so busy? I've had those moments where like I look at the mirror and I'm like, oh yeah, that's me. Like you just get too busy and you forget. Some of you are like, he's crazy. I can see the looks in your faces. It's real what he's saying here, isn't it? That there's actually something the word is designed to do that's to reveal, and we don't need to be a people that are walking away, I'll spare you, and not doing it. That actually we need to hear, 
apply it, obey. And as we live that with the people around us, there's a blessing that God has that he begins to put on us and through us. The last two verses, verse 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, any gossipers in the room or online? What's up? We see you. He says, if you do not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If you're taking notes, Jesus changes us to serve him and to serve others. He begins to work in us and through us that we would be a people that are living a lifestyle of Christianity that says, we're here not to tear down others with our words. We're not here to destroy others. We're here to speak life, to build up others, and to serve and demonstrate who Jesus really is to the world around us. Amen? And when that begins to flow through a people, it changes homes, it changes neighborhoods, it changes churches, it changes communities. And this is how we want to show up as a people that are saying, we're going to live this, even if it's not popular. We're going to live this, even if it's hard. We're going to live this, even if it hurts a little. Because it isn't about our comfort. Sorry, we live in paradise. Paradise can put us to sleep. I have no idea. My, two of my kids are in the room. They're going to be like, Dad, you're a mess. It does. It, it can lull us to sleep to live in such a day and age and in such a beautiful place. But there's something God wants to do through a people that say, Jesus, you're changing me and I'm here to serve you and serve others. A number of decades ago, I think it was in the, around 1960, uh, the Kennedys, uh, Pat and Marion, medical missionaries, incredible story. These medical missionaries uh, were asked uh, by the sheik in the United Arab Emirates to come into a desert, deserted area and to actually help establish, even though they were believers, even though this was a predominantly Muslim area, they were asked to come and to love and to serve in an area and establish a clinic to help with a problem that that area had. In fact, what the problem was, was a 50% infant mortality rate. Here's a picture of uh, the Kennedys. This is, the first one is Pat. As they're arriving with very little in this deserted area, the next one is his wife, Marion. And as they arrive there, they're actually told by the sheik, you know, I've lost three children recently uh, to miscarriage. If you deliver the next, I will deliver to you a hut to begin establishing a clinic and a hospital. Even though you love Jesus, serve Jesus, and that's different than what he believed, right? You with me? So, so actually, it happened. He, he was true to his word. Today, all these years later, there's actually, it grew into a full-fledged hospital that today is still there serving the mission, serving Jesus in that area. 
It was called the Oasis for many years, but nobody, uh, if, if you were to p- be picked up in a taxi cab, people wouldn't have known what, locally what the Oasis was. They only knew it as the Canad. That was how they pronounced Kennedy. They struggled to say the name, so they pronounced it as the Canad. It's still called that today. The amazing thing about it was they had very little when they were serving. As they're dealing with blood loss and issues with surgeries and deliveries, They actually called on their staff in the lack of refrigeration to tell on the wall. They would post what their blood types were and whatever blood they needed for that particular moment, they would literally scrub out, draw the blood, and then bring it into the room. Mrs. Kennedy, Dr. Kennedy, actually was type O, which is the universal blood type, meaning hers was like the one needed most of the time. She gave so much blood that during her years serving there, she actually was anemic for most of the time dealing with iron deficiency because she was constantly giving of blood. Why would they do this? Because for them, life, Christianity is a lifestyle. It was something that God had called them to do. I don't know if God's going to call you to the United Arab Emirates I don't know if he's going to call you across the street in Vero Beach, Fort Pierce, Sebastian. I don't know if he's going to call you to move across the aisle in this church to build a bridge. But what I do know is he wants to use all of us to love and to serve him and to be a blessing. Church, it is time for us to show up as more than just those that say we're Christians, but those that are really living it. So three questions for you, next steps, moving from hearers to doers of the word. First is, have you placed your faith in Jesus and been baptized? If you haven't received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please come see one of us. If you're online, let our hosts know. We want to pray with you. We also want to give you the opportunity to say, I need to be baptized. That's a step of obedience, a step of faith. Jesus told us to go and make disciples, teaching them everything he taught and to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you haven't been baptized, start there. Second question, will you let Jesus change your lifestyle personally? Through his word today, what has he shown you that that he wants you to allow him to change? Because he's over it all. He's over everything. And when we begin to allow him to change us personally, we begin to experience life as it was meant to be. And third, will you let him change your lifestyle interpersonally? Maybe there's some people that you need to connect with. Maybe there's some things God's been showing you in his word and saying, I need you to go do this. I need, you've heard it, now go do it. And you're not there and God's not here to condemn you or shame you. I'm not here to do that either. I'm here to say if the Holy Spirit is showing you something and giving you a conviction, then it's your moment to let go of everything else and do what he's showing you. Because if we will go after him, he is going to bless. He is going to pour out. He is going to do things that will exceed anything that we could come up with on our own. Church, I'm excited. I'm going to pray us into a time to respond. If you'll just stand if you're able. I want to pray over us. Because there may be a sense of conviction in the room. You may sense uh, the enemy even trying to take that 
and turn it into condemnation. And I want to just come against that in Jesus' name. Because if he's showing you what it means to move from belief to being a practicing lifestyle Christian, I celebrate that. And so does Jesus. And he is ready to receive you. He's ready to lift anything off of us. And so whatever it may be that has been holding you back or holding you captive, he's here to set you free as you lay it down and say, Jesus, you're over everything. He is ready. He is able. So we're going to open up the front. If you want to come forward for prayer, if you want to come forward to praise, to worship, whatever that looks like, this is our time to respond and to be doers of what the Lord is showing us. Amen. Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you, Jesus, that you are over everything, that you invite us into a lifestyle of loving you and loving others, of living for you and living to to share you with others. God, I thank you for how you are showing up today in the middle of different trials and troubles, even maybe in the middle of temptation that's been crouching at our door. You are there to say, I am good and have better for us. So right now, Father, we just want to let it all go. We want to look to you. We just invite you, Holy Spirit, to move in the room and to find a people hungry and open to you. In Jesus' name, amen.